they um, surrender themselves at the border along with the, the child. They're taken in. And at some point, they are told that the child is going to be taken to, have, to be bathed. And the child never comes back. You've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. I am Todd Miller, and I am excited to welcome anthropologist Gilberto Rosas, professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, to the Border Chronicle podcast. Welcome, Gilberto. Thank you, Todd. I'm a longtime admirer of your work. Oh, thank you. As am I of you. And so I'm so happy to have you on. And um, I'm so happy, excited to, to be able to discuss your new book, which is titled Unsettling, the El Paso Massacre, Resurgent White Nationalism and the U.S.-Mexico Border. And um, I should mention that we are recording this podcast. You are obviously listening to this, not when we're recording it, so you're listening in the future. But we are recording it on August the 3rd, which is the anniversary, I guess, or the, I don't know how, how you'd put it, anniversary sounds way too positive. The, it's, a four, it's been four years exactly since this massacre happened in El Paso. And I, and Gilberto, I, I think, um, that would be a great place for us to start to, um, if you could maybe explain what happened on that day through your eyes, like my I eyes. believe that, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I believe you're, you, you're, yeah, you're from El Paso, you're trying to call right. your parents. I'll just leave it for right. you to describe again um, what happened. Let me begin there. I am from El Paso. I, I grew up in El Paso. I was not born there, but I grew up in El Paso. I went to school in El Paso. I, you know, and then my my mom and dad's families go back for generations and generations and generations. The the uh, uh, my great grandparents uh, crossed the border during the Mexican Revolution. Um, in many ways, they are the one of the early incarnations of the refugees that you now see today. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I did some early work years ago in, in Southern Arizona on a group of street youth who called themselves Barrio Libre and who inhabited the tunnels and committed acts of, of crime. And I tied it then to the rise of the, uh, well, the intensifying border patrolling of Southern Arizona and, and Northern Sonora. And, and so in, and that was 2012 through 2014, when I, when the book comes out and the like. What is the title of that book? It's called Barrio Libre, mm -hmm. Criminalizing States and Delinquent Refusals of the New Frontier. Thank you. And that was uh, the book that got me tenure at University of Illinois or Venice Champaign, you know, and it's, it's Duke University Press, it, it, it's still doing pretty well. Um, I, I, I argued in that book, well, I argued in 2006 that the Border Patrol was driving migrants into dangerous forms of crossing, one of them being the sewer tunnels. You know, so prevention through deterrence 
configures, as we know, many of us know now, right? That, 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 that the Democrats and Republicans alike configured the border crossings as sites of violence and despair where migrants are to suffer and or perish. And one of the channels of migrants using then was the sewer channels where they were being preyed upon by these body That book comes out, I get tenure, and I decide, you know, I, I want to write about something different. And, and at that point, I begin to imagine going back to my hometown of El Paso and writing, upon, writing about it as a site of refuge. So, you know, and I'm an anthropologist, a social cultural anthropologist, and we, and we, we very much uh, work with populations often vulnerable, often activists, and uh, to generate knowledge communally. Like, so I go back to El Paso and I begin to imagine a project um, thinking about, you know, how my family crossed the border again generations ago during the revolution. And then, and I'm thinking that, that, that alongside, you know, the, the growing and again ongoing militarization of the border. And then, of course, there's the election of 45. Or, or Donald Trump, which while it does it it, it does amplify uh, policing and and border militarization, I want to return to that point in a second. It also amplifies the rhetoric. It, it amplifies this really nasty way of of envisioning border crossers. So I'm, I'm back in El Paso doing research. I, I, you know, I, I go back and forth between Illinois and El Paso. And I, I'm talking to activists. And one, one of them in particular, Deanna Martinez, who writes an interlude in the book, urges me to perhaps shift the focus some and, and, and look at family separation. So I begin to look into, this, to, into that question. Meanwhile, I begin to uh, talk to various immigration attorneys. I, 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 I have, uh, for the past several years, I've given testimony on behalf of asylum seekers and that informs the book as well. But um, so I'm talking to immigration attorneys about asylum and, and about how people are crossing the border to find- Is, is, this, in is this a 2008, just to give a time context, is this 2018, 2017, 2018 or? Well, will that be the testimony work or when I'm back in El Paso? Yeah, when you're doing the you're doing the testimony work with family I think separation. I the testimony work 2014 through 2016, ongoing, off and oh, on. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm doing the, and then I go back to El Paso. I think in 2018 to begin the research project on refuge, and that and that's when Deanna and I meet. Gotcha. And she urges me to think about family separation. So, and then I'm talking to attorneys about you know similar questions, refuge, family separation, and I. Uh, I, I, I learned through some various networks that uh, there had been that El Paso becomes one of the first sites where family separation is a, was occurring. 
and I have a great interview with a, with a public defender who's describing what he's seen in the courts, when he's, he's hitting on the ground and the like. And uh, he recounts to me, for example, his name is Sergio Garcia. He's at El Paso Federal Public Defenders. Tells me this, I mean, it's a, it's a really tragic story. Um, an elderly woman, no, an elderly caregiver, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not clear of the gender, uh, is caught. They um, surrender themselves at the border along with the, with the child. They're taken in. And at some point, they are told that the child is going to be taken to, have, to be bathed. And the child never comes back. So I'm hearing these kind of stories during the day. And I'll add some more context here. This is now 2018. This is happening when I'm getting these narratives. Um, wait, yeah, I'm getting these narratives in 2018. And I'm thinking about my children. Let me back up. I'm, 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 it's 2019. I'm sorry, Todd. It's 2019 when this is happening. I'm getting these stories. And it turns out that in the summer of 2019, I decided to go to El Paso along with my family. So I took my partner, who's also a scholar, and my two children. So I'd hear these kind of horrific accounts of family separation during the day, documenting them. I know I take careful notes, I record these stories and the like. And I'd go back at night and see my children and I, and, I, and I wouldn't want to tell them what I was hearing. I was just so saddened. So, you know, the book is already shifting as, as instead of being refuge now, it's becoming much more about detention, amplified enforcement and the like, how refuge and asylum are being criminalized by what I see as the, as the, the deepening enforcement of a, or a hardening of the border. Hmm. Over there from early summer 2019 to July 31st, 2019. And again, El Paso is home. My parents are there. My in-law, my, my, my father-in-law is there. I have, you know, extended networks of family and friends in El Paso. And it's, July, it's like July, it's late July. And I know we're gonna leave soon. And my partner and I and the kids are driving around town, including the east side of El Paso. We go to, you know, we go to a Bassett Center, which is right by that infamous Walmart. And then we go home and then we, we leave. I think like the first or the 31st, we leave town, drive back to Ravenna Champagne. It's a long drive, it's two days. And, you know, we get there, I think in the second, or we get there in the second. And the next day, I remember my partner, my, my, my uh, Corinta Malonado, and the kids leave. 
and I see the report of the of the mass shooting at Walmart. And I start, you know, I get really anxious. I have, again, my parents are there. A lot of families there, a lot of friends are there, colleagues are there. And I pick up my phone and I start calling and I keep getting this, this, this message, you know, the, the, some kind of like, you know, that there's too many, they, they, I could not get through basically. So, you know, it's a good 10, 15 minutes. And meanwhile, the reporting is, is just of, the, of, this, of this horrendous mass shooting. It's, it's getting worse and worse, bodies, blood, reports or rumors of other mass shooters in the area. And as I recount in the book, I'm calling and I'm calling and I just cannot get through to my parents. And finally, uh, I get through, they're on the highway. It, they had heard of the mass shooting. They were, going, they were avoiding the, you know, that part of town and they're heading back home to the, to the far west side. Uh, and, you know, my, my father is, former military, his voice is quivering. And, you know, as someone who grew up at the border, who, has, who knows the, the literature on the intensified policing of the border, militarized policing, I'll, I'll even say, um, as someone who has deep roots in that region, I felt compelled to, to analyze it as an outgrowth of the hardening of the U.S. Mexico border. And that is the book. And I, and I also try to uh, gesture at alternatives in the book as well. Yeah, that that like I there's this quote like and and I strongly recommend all of our listeners come read this book. It's filled with the uh, I mean I'm going to read one, but there's so at the writing and the there's so many quotes to draw from and um so much I mean there's so much uh, to draw from in the book, but the writing is is very superb. And I think this this um this quote here that I'm about to read captures a lot of what you're saying is a thesis of the book and it says the mass shooting on august 3rd 2019 demands a reckoning it must be situated in a recent and vicious amplification of pre-existing u.s mexico border and immigration policy how it fuels a nihilistic and violent will to power um yeah so i wonder if you could talk more at length about that could you first though tell remind us what ha happened how many people oh were, yeah, were, yeah. were right. killed yeah right. there were 22 people killed there were 23 people wounded but and, but i think that may be an undercount i think a lot reports from the scene are that people fled many of them who are undocumented they imagine and thus did not want to be to, to, uh, to go to you know public to, to get to get help basically 
And I will also note that, that the Walmart is, I mean, maybe a mile from the Mexico border. It, 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 you know, it's, it's very close to the border. It's, it's, it's well known as a site where Mexican nationals and Mexican Americans converge to do shopping. And the, and the, the mass shooter posted on 8chan right, right before the shooting, this manifesto on a quote unquote Hispanic invasion. So with respect to the will to power, I, th I think there is a, a deep resonance between how law enforcement, well, border law enforcement, border patrol, uh, the National Guard, the sheriff, et cetera, has generated a, a very hard border, a very hard kind of masculinity, a very hard kind of will to, to contain, if not punish or kill border crossers. And it resonates and it fuels and it aggravates the white nationalist rights. And if you trace back the legacies of border enforcement, it is full of examples. You know, the, the Border Patrol comes out of uh, the Ku Klux Klan, comes out of the Texas Rangers, uh, notorious, in my communities, notorious uh, law enforcement types that skirt the law while enacting often racist violence against communities of color. Um, that said, I, want, I really wanna underline this, and I think it's been said many times before, I'm gonna say it one more time again. The border policy is a bipartisan enterprise. It is a bipartisan enterprise. There is a consensus among the policymakers that the border must be hard, that migrants are, should be positioned as, as vulnerable or at least as unwelcome. And that, again, it, it, it kindles, as language I use in the book, it kindles. The, the far right, the racist, the killing, killer racist rights. And it has, there is now a generation of US citizens that has grown up believing that borders should be that way. And when I grew up and my parents grew up and other borderlanders grew up, the border was not open per se, but it was, more fluid, more welcoming. And, you know, I, 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 I do suggest in the book that that is a much more humane way of, of, of dealing with these kind of encounters. So you have seen, like personally with your own eyes, you've seen the, the, cha the stark changes that have happened yes. on the border. Yes. Yes, yes. I, 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 wanna, I wanna back up a bit for a second here and talk to you about the distinction between policing and militarization to make in the first book in particular. 
there's been some 10,000 migrant deaths. Migrants have been channeled again into dangerous forms of crossing, right? But I, I feel that the rhetoric, by, I'm not the rhetoric, that the analysis of militarization often suggests that they're being, if not, too, if not, if not, if not being too careful, it will suggest that people are being shot by the military. And I don't, that's not what is going on. People are being pushed into, again into dangerous terrain. And these kind of, that kind of, of normalization of, of migrant violence, that kind of normalization that 10,000 people can cross, can die in deserts or in tunnels or, or globally in, in oceans, that kindles a will to power, a nihilistic will to power that organizes the far right. Indeed, if you look, I mean, going back to the, the mass shooting that occurred in the Walmart and, and, and that, that the, killer, the killer's name was Patrick Crucius. And I'm not going to, I'll say his name at one time only because I don't want to give him too much fama. But um, he, um, he references another mass shooting in New Zealand. And it was anti-migrant. Of course, this time they were, they, were, they were Muslim. And I think part of the project of this book, beyond documenting what has happened, which I think is very important, I don't want to minimize the, is also to begin to show that it's a global phenomenon. And the emphasis on policing is also to highlight how there's commonalities between this, between the border struggle and similar movements such as Black Lives Matter and its engagement with policing enterprises. So in the case of the, the, the shooter that in the Walmart shooter in El Paso um, to ours, so would it be fair to say that you're, that in a way, what you're trying to say is that the the border, the border, the border itself, the border and the strategy and policies over many de decades, centuries, even, um, has uh, a violent and inherent violence and brutality towards people um, in it that then kindles or becomes it, it like in in the case of the shooter, would, would it is it could it be possible to say that the sort of conditions or the culture even put forth by this this mass fortification mm -hmm. of the border and what it implies gets into the a person's head and yeah they, I think it, just, is I that a fair way to put it or um, yeah it, it feeds his his psyche it feeds his subjectivity and it so to the point where he feels. There is a Hispanic invasion. I mean, that, that kind of rhetoric that he's deploying there is is key. Um, the, the great replacement theory as well, right, and you talk right, about that right, as well, right? Um, which, which which he references in his book, the great replacement. I mean, pardon me, in in, in his manifesto, um, his manifesto references the great replacement theory, which is a body of theory written by a French ideologue, Camus, C A M U S, that 
argues that white Europeans are being ursuped by migrants from Africa and the Mideast and the like. And, and I think, and I draw a line between that, Crucius, as he does as well, and, and also US immigration policy and border policy, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so, so it's sort of, so everything just kind of ties in to together, so to speak, with right, with right, right, and and again, I think the like to exercise family separation. I I I, I would I I think it's, I'm suggesting very strongly in the book as well this that you in order for for uh, that family family separation, which punishes migrants in ways it's not supposed to, but it ultimately does. It makes it makes migrants experience the loss of a child, the militarization of border law enforcement. The practices of of the instilled practices of vigilante violence among elements of the border patrol set the stage or culminate in August 3rd, 2019, where 22 people were killed by a white nationalist. 23 were injured, and the legacy still haunts us in El Paso. I do want to underscore. I mean, the, 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 yes, borders are rooted in conquest. They are rooted in violence. They are rooted in the, in the dispossession of indigenous peoples from their lands. But the border was not always this way. Many borderlanders do not believe that the border should be this hard or not this you know, impassable. And there are all better ways to deal with these encounters with the border. I, I think, for example, that if policymakers were to listen to people from the borderlands, these kind of discursive, ideological, and material conditions would not be as severe. Yeah, what a concept! Listen to people from the borderlands, right? Yeah, um, which it, that that gets me um, thinking to maybe the or one of the last questions. Um, and you talk about a concept called dignified rage um, yeah. in the book, um, and I and I want to ask you about that. But first, before I I, I go to that, you also have um, some interesting linguistic um, uh, oh, yeah. that you like uh, like words that you will use, terms you'll use, and terms you're not going to use. And I found that really very interesting in how you're presenting and even how you're framing and how you're going counter how often, you know, the borders are often framed, you know, in, in the United States, for example, to like the regular, you know, like in the mainstream media, for example. And and um, could you talk about some of the words like even migrants, yeah. you know, sure, sure, detained, sure. you know, those words right. and how why you've chosen not to use those words. I'll be I'll do the I'll do those two terms. I'll do I'll do migrant and I'll do uh, detention or detained. Great. Um migrant, I feel it just it just it's become so naturalized to again to 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 people in the in the world that, that people are on the move or that people are moving that the that the underpinnings of it often are lost. Like what drives migration, be it, you know, 
undeclared wars of Central America, or be it, you know, the North American Free Trade Agreement in, in Mexico, or be it, you know, uh, ecological crises in, in Africa. Uh, and I think this, I use the term dispossessed in lieu of migrant to capture, or to, to, to begin to grapple with that, those kind of tensions. And then with respect to detain and detainee, uh, I'm gonna really underline the, the work of a scholar, activist and, and lawyer, Virginia Raymond, who I deeply respect and a, a dear comrade uh, from, from way back in graduate school uh, and, her, and, and her insistence to me that, that the term detainee and detention neuters what is going on. You know, it, it, it underplays what is going on. People are not being detained. I am detained when I go out, the, you know, when I get pulled over by, by what? No, when, I, when I'm in line at a coffee shop, I'm being detained, I have to wait a little bit. People are not in detention, they are incarcerated. And if you, if you begin to look at the history of detention, it's, it's typically enforced upon civilians, non-criminal, a non-criminal class. And that kind of language is often deployed around concentration camps. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so interesting because it's almost presented, you know, those, those, even those two terms that are, are de detained. I have a problem with it as well. And um, <laughs> even today I was uh, on another, I was in another interview and I came out of my mouth and then I, I switched it. I, then I said, no, it's, I'm not going to use that word. And I just, uh, you know, I, I've been reading your book. So, <laughs> so thank uh, you. And I said, I'm going to say another word because it's imprisoned or incarcerated because that's incarcerated. You know, because, but yeah. In, yeah incarcerated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it also, it also invites us to do better comparisons and political work with different communities, such as again, BLM or, you know, other kind of communities in struggle, indigenous rights, you know. Yeah, it, may, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And to start reframing how, you know, all of these things, the border, particularly immigration is being presented day in, day out, the same terms used over and over again, and the same sort of thinking about it. And what I really like about what you're doing is challenging that that thinking about it and just by even altering those words that we that a lot of people will say unconsciously you know and making us think about those words you know oh maybe i don't want to use that word and and i think right. that's a um a very uh val another valuable part of your book which fits into I, everything i just jump in i, I really want to again underline that, that much of my of that kind of reworking is the work of activists you know they they really they're really active in reframing in terms of debate. So yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, the credit, the, yeah, credit words yeah, too, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And they, and that in part is why I have an activist, scholar, intellectual, uh, Diana Martinez, write an interview in the book because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm signaling that 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 you know my expertise is informed by their critical work on the ground. You know, I, I consider myself an activist, but I'm not there every day. You know, which which also then then brings me to that question of 
of dignified rage you know what is like you challenge uh, you can go into it more but the idea of rage and the the idea of rage is often oh don't don't, watch out don't talk about rage right what what does that mean and and you really like unpack it in the book what it what it you know you looking at other anthropologists and then you you bring up this this idea of dignified rage and how rage could be as a useful as something useful i wonder if you could can you talk more about that please sure that's probably the most uh that that chapter is you're referring to is probably the deepest engagement with anthropology in the book and i and i and i'm and i'm a drawing on the legacy of Renato Rosaldo and on the, the work of a dear friend and colleague and great thinker in Mexico, Mariana Mora, who worked with the Zapatistas. And she there encounters the concept dignified rage. And before I explicate what I mean by that, I want to note that, and I'm, I, I, I want to be you know, very transparent in how knowledge is produced. My partner, Curita Maldonado, the one that you should look at dignified rate as, as, a, as a concept to use in your book. And so here, here I am. Okay. Um, so dignified rage, the Zapatista invention, Zapatista term to help people critically challenge power. And, you know, there's a, a uh, if you read Fanon, if you read Rosado, if you read Mora, there's, there's, there's these, they're not striving for objectivity. They're striving the childish powers in productive ways as the Zapatistas have and continue to do today. So when I deploy that term into the chapter where I'm talking about, it's a chapter where I'm talking about my grief and my rage at what happened in El Paso, it, I'm trying to be productive. It's not, it's not the, and I will, before I continue, it, it flirts with the idea of machismo a bit because I'm a, I'm a I'm positioned as a Latinx cis presenting male, but I, I am. But I mean, you know. Uh, but uh, but it, it it it. I think much of my sadness and my rage at the border can be channeled in productive ways to challenge the ongoing relations, and hopefully convince those in positions of policy and power and the like that perhaps there's a better way for us to think about the border. And you know, perhaps I need to go to, to, to go to continue going to, to courts and and describing why people seek asylum in the United States and the like. You know, it's it's people I worked with who were talking about family separation were breaking down when they're telling me what was going on. You know, there's sadness and there's rage and and they're kind of coupled together. That's what I'm drawing on. The legacy there and how it's kind of an important political aspect for for you know for for good work. Yeah, and I'm wondering, um, and this will have to be the final question, but I'm wondering, like thinking about, you know, what you're saying about dignified rage and how you were looking through that lens, like looking through what happened in El Paso and the massacre. And then furthermore, of course, by extension with your book, your the border itself. And um, I'm wondering, like thinking about all that, what are your thoughts about um what could happen on the border how we could shift um or what or what what would you suggest um as a direction that we could go on the border you know keep 
like not only take, taking the dignified rates, but taking all your research yeah, on yeah, this yeah, book, I, I, the previous right, books right, and everything. Right, right. Yeah. I, I think decriminalizing border crossing, decriminalizing what, you know, de-emphasizing policing, begin to, to think about movement across borders as not a site of, of anxiety, but as a normal part of everyday life is banal. I, I and many people I know cross the border regularly to get coffee, to get meals, to 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 to, to make love, to to you know to, and and but that kind of that kind of uh, knowledge about the border has been lost. The border for many people in the United States, for policymakers in particular, for the for Abbott's right, it's, it's a site where people have to be stopped, or suffer, or punished. Or die, and that just is not. Yeah, no. that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. My hometown should not be a site where people are shot in a, in a Walmart, or people or people who are crossing the border should be use their children, or or uh, there's border patrol helicopters buzzing in the sky. That is just we do not need a police state here. Well, um, do you have a? Uh... Thank you, but do you have anything else you might want to add before we close? Any last words of wisdom yeah. that you can bring? Yeah. I do, I, and again, I think there's a generation of people who have been raised with borders as being spaces of, of hard borders as, as normal. And where migrant, where the dispossessed must be made to suffer. There's better ways. And they're, and they're not... I mean, I have a, there's a narrative I read somewhere recently where where officers used to help people seek an asylum. You know, like legit, I mean, not just like the asylum officers, but actually border patrol types would, would, would help migrants seek an asylum. I'm not a reformist. I much I, I more in a, fall into the abolitionist vein. But I do think that there is a, you know, we need to begin correcting what has happened. And hopefully preventing other mass shootings from occurring. We had a mass shooting in Buffalo a couple of years ago that, that, that resonated quite a bit with what happened in El Paso. And we, and I do, I'm nervous about what uh, the next election, what it means for the border. Yeah, no, but you raise all kinds of great points. And, and of course, now with the elections coming, the border is only going to be at the top, most likely at the top of the list. And right. With, uh, with certain candidates that look like they're going to be in the fray, you know, that so we can only expect to be uh, the silver lining is that maybe we'll be able to have these discussions like we're having now and 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 especially with your book out now um you like uh you'll be able to converse um about your ideas and the things that the insights that you have. Um can you let people know where they can find out more about you or order your book. Um, sure, sure, sure. So I'm currently um, associate professor at Newsville, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in anthropology and Latino-Latina studies. Uh, I'm also the interim chair of the, of the Latino-Latina studies unit. The book is available at Amazon. It's published by John Hopkins University Press. It's, it's widely available. Um, oh, and then uh, I'm in El Paso right now. This comes out, this, oh, never, well, the, the podcast comes out this week, but 
I'm, I'll be speaking about the book in the next couple of days. Yeah, yeah. Are you going to be speaking other places as well besides El Paso? Will you be doing a sort of book tour yeah. around the country? Yeah. Do you have some places be. you might? That... I'm going to I'm going to Princeton. I'm going to University of Oregon. I'm going to where else am I going? I'm going to UC Riverside. Those come to mind right away. There's others as well. Okay. Yeah. So if anybody in those areas could just look you up and and yeah. get the dates and try to maybe go out and see you speak on the book and converse about these things because it, it's yeah. super important super important book Gilberto many thanks for being with us here on the Border Chronicle podcast thank you Todd you've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast the Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque based in Tucson Arizona this episode was edited by me Steve Heiss If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.